Well, I mean, one of one of the kind of motifs of my thinking life or my you know my artistic life is the, the the famous quote from I think it was Gide who said, "Don't understand me too quickly." The first time I showed paintings was in 1979. I remember at the opening, a man came up to me and introduced himself as a as a psychoanalyst. Said, uh, "I have I have a real problem with your work," and I said, oh, "Okay." I mean, I was 27 or something, so I I didn't take it personally. I said, "Oh, really? What's what's the problem?" And he said. Uh, I feel excluded by your paintings. I don't like it. It was very. It really struck me. I, I and I took it as an as an accomplishment. Like, well, maybe you're not meant to be included. Or maybe that's. I mean, I think all he was saying was these are difficult. And I thought to myself, yes, difficult. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is the Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion art, design, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today has been a fixture of the American art scene for decades, painter David Sally. As a member of the so-called pictures generation, his postmodern works reference media, pop culture, cinema, graphic design, and often have a winking eye towards issues of consumerism, the male gaze, and conceptions of beauty. Originally from Oklahoma, Sally moved to L.A. to study at CalArts, where he was taught by John Baldessari, and eventually on to New York, where his career has taken many twists and turns. He's done everything from designing costumes and sets for the ballet, to writing as an art critic and author, and he even directed a feature film, Search and Destroy, in 1995. Sally's incredible paintings, often tagged as neo-expressionism, are colorful and dazzling without being eyesores, layered with meaning without being pedantic, and alluring without resorting to cheap shots. Sally's latest exhibition is his first comprehensive survey in decades, taking place at the Brandt Foundation Art Study Center in Greenwich, Connecticut, running through April 1st. The massive show, which includes the artist's first foray into NFTs, has more than 40 works from the Brandt collection and various loans from around the world. I caught up with David Sally at his studio in New York to talk about his early life, how to understand the pictures generation today, and if the dynamic creative ever intends to retire. And it's like every artist or designer that I've ever, you know, interviewed always has a, a kind of an origin story of how they ended up studying where they studied or, or, or how they first set off on their journey. So for you, how did you find yourself in California sort of studying under people like Baldessari and so on? I ended up in California at, at CalArts through what was largely a fluke. If I were so inclined, I would chalk it up to some sort of providential will because it was the most unlikely thing in the world. I only knew about the school by chance. I had been going to, as a teenager, going to a private art school in Wichita, Kansas, where I grew up studying with some very accomplished painters, but it was independent of any uh, school organization. It was just, it was a private kind of atelier academy. In the hallway of this school, the posters for CalArts magically appeared. It would, would have been 1969, so the, the school didn't even exist yet. It was a kind of promissory note for, for a school. And if you think about it, what on earth compelled me in mid-century Kansas to think that I was going to apply to this fantasy school and, and, and actually go there, but it, but it worked out. I, it was the first time I was on an airplane, the first time I was in a city. I arrived in California with a, with a suitcase and um, an address. I didn't even know where I was going. The school was, in its own way, kind of a miracle. It was a lifeline to quite a number of people at the time. 
people who like myself who were coming from essentially from very little or people who had become disenchanted with education prior education art, art education and other institutions so it was a miraculous gathering of late countercultural types and neophytes like myself can't imagine a better outcome i mean when you if you had never flown before and as a young man from kansas and going to la you know in california at the time what was that what was that like for you what was LA like as a, that first impression? I was I couldn't have been more provincial. I had never been to either coast or to a city. I'd never flown a plane. When it came out in the dorms that I was this kid who had never seen the ocean, uh, some of the students were so amazed by this. It was like some like seeing someone from another planet. They organized it uh, to take me to see the Pacific. First time I went there, just two things happened. I was overcome by the sound of it. I wasn't prepared. For the the roar, the, the the sound of the crashing waves, it makes such a such a loud sound. And walking on the beach, I saw a woman walking a pet anteater on a leash. That that sounds very California. And I thought, oh, I am really in California now. I am really in a different world. So that was that was almost the the first week I was there. And it just kept going on like that. There were every everything was a first, a first this, a first that. Uh, it was fabulous. Southern California was a very good fit. Uh, New York probably would have been uh, overwhelming, but California being essentially a car culture, not not really that much different from any other part of America, just bigger. Uh, I I found my bearings actually rather quickly. And when and you know when I when people read about your early life and they they always mention that you studied under Baldessari. And can you, can you fact check that a little bit for me? Like what was, was he your teacher? What did you, did you work with him a lot? Did you know him personally? CalArts was a very small school. There were, I don't know how many students, but only a very small handful of students in the art school, in the undergraduate department, and an even smaller number in the graduate department. I was a first year student, but I was kind of elevated to the third and fourth year painting group in the first weeks. So Baldessari was one of a very small faculty. I don't know how many there were, but there was one principal painting teacher and John was the principal uh, teacher of what was then called post-studio art, which I think is a term that John made up. So it was very intimate. Very, there were no, It wasn't a lecture hall. It was simply a studio where you would gather with people in John's class and John would be there. Very first name basis, very intimate, very personal. And John was at a phase in his life where he didn't really seem to want to go home. He had nothing but time. He would hang out at the school with us and we would hang out with him after school. And on the weekends, we would sometimes work in his studio. I worked with John. I worked for John. I worked as his studio assistant on and off. I'm in a lot of his early videotapes and films, along with a lot of other students, certainly not me alone. We had a friendship, I think. John was friends with the students. He he never seemed to feel put upon or overextended. He always had time for people. It's really quite remarkable. I think about it now, I'm just astonished at how generous John was with his time. We became friends and stayed friends till the end of his life. Uh, I was someone who I value enormously and, again, feel providential that I met him when I did. What happened, I mean, the origin story that I believe uh, happened is that prior to going to CalArts, I was steeped in an academic painting tradition. I was a kind of realist painter, but not in an academic way. I mean, that, that term seems it calls up all kinds of, you know, perhaps calls impressions of um, something old-fashioned. But, but in fact, my teachers were very much modernists themselves. However, it, it was 
straightforward figurative painting. Then I go to CalArts and I meet John and I stop painting altogether. And a year later, I find myself you know, right in the middle of the, 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 the conceptual art world in which one could do all the other things besides paint, video, film, photography, performance, just pure thinking, pure philosophy or whatnot, uh, anything except painting, hence the name post-studio. So my, I, in a way, uh, I'm a product of the collision between those two traditions, from one from tradition and the the kind of absence of tradition. On the other hand, making it up, uh, making it up new, making it up as you go along. And my work of the last forty years, in a way, can be seen as a as the kind of mediation between those two spheres. One important angle to understand about David Sally is how his intellectual life is indistinguishable from his artistic one. To me, his career, starting in the 70s and 80s, is linked to his varied experiences and the way he looks at the world. But it always comes back to the enigma of his work. Do they have meaning? Does the lack of meaning have meaning? I wanted to get David on the record to describe his paintings as best he can. To the totally uninitiated, how would you describe your own work, uh, realizing how much of a challenge that is uh, for a podcast and how visually vibrant your work is? Yeah, it's it's one of those questions that's so interesting because it should be relatively straightforward and easy to answer, and it's anything but. I don't know anyone, I really don't know anyone who's good at describing their own work in a way which would satisfy them. But let me try. I probably would say it looks like a magazine layout from another time that got intercut with another magazine layout from another time, something like that. Two 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 different magazine layouts that somehow ended up getting intercut. I would also say that it looks like the, the Windows uh, computer program, a, a, a picture within a picture. That's maybe the closest stylistic analogy I can think of. And when people describe you as part of a sort of the pictures generation, um, you know, first, do, do, you, do you like that kind of association? Do you agree with it? Or is it something that irritates you? Um, you know, how would you, how would you describe that? The second part of the question would be, how would you describe that group to that same person who is uninitiated? Well, first of all, I don't object to it. I, it, it. As labels go, it's it's one of the least offensive ones, art labels. <laughs> I mean, it's, it has a kind of a nice ring to it, the pictures generation. What does it mean? Going back to the to the 60s and 70s, I mean, as, as I was describing earlier, the, the, uh, the aesthetic, let's say the dominant aesthetic mode for many, many years was a kind of the kind of minimalist one-ment, uh, which, culturally speaking, very much either turned its back on or absented itself from anything to do with, let's say, popular culture, for one of a, for one of a better term. Now, pop art, notwithstanding, you could say, well, pop art was the most popular style in, in, in probably in a, in a hundred years, which is true. But in a way, pop art was the outlier. It was the it was the um, exception to the rule. Going back to the early 20th century, the the dominant stylistic progression had been toward increasing abstraction, increasing increasing detachment from or separation from other forms of culture. That the the art was was a thing apart. So to say that well, art is a thing apart, perhaps, but it's also a way of thinking about what. The very idea of representation means. What does it mean to represent something in another another medium? That you you're looking at this thing and you're representing it in, in this way. The very act of representation, the very act of presentation, was something that was 
in and of itself interesting and seemed to require some you know some real thoughts real study i can't speak for the whole generation but i but i know it wasn't just myself we found these kind of very basic almost i want to say um uh philosophical problems of well, what what does it mean to represent something uh, why would you do it and what's the relationship between the the original and the copy or is there any, any such thing as an original it was kind of impossible to grow up in the 60s and 70s and not feel these questions uh, were were pressing up against us. Uh, I remember driving down, we asked for about, about origin stories. This is the kind of origin story within an origin story. I remember driving down the Ocean Boulevard in Santa Monica, it must have been in 1973 or four, in the, in the broad daylight. It wasn't like that I was on, on, on drugs or anything. I just, I had a very distinct sensation of the facades of the buildings being both themselves and also a representation of the idea of a building. It was almost as if the facade of the building was separating off from the building itself, even though, of course, it didn't literal space. It was just one edifice. And then I, but I recognized at the time that in a way that was my theme, I, that, that very slight wedge between, let's call it the name and the named. If, the, if you could imagine a very slight wedge opening up between those two things, uh, that was my theme, and I knew it at the time, and I, I, I felt it, and it came over me like a wave of, of, of consciousness. And everything I've done since then has been in one way or another to try to work with that or work inside of that or illuminate that. So that's very, very different uh, sensibility from someone who, let's say, believes in the, in the absolute rightness of a, of a black rectangle, of a, of, a, of a rectangle of, you know, black oil stick marks that that makes a complete performance and it, it, think, it, it is what it is. I mean, as, as the, um, uh, I don't know if it was Frank Stella who said it, you, you know, what, what you see is what you see, what you see is what you get. The, the what isness of painting in its kind of irreducible essence was something that the early generation obviously felt with great conviction, but was, was much less accessible to my generation. Maybe that it's simply another way of saying we, we just grew up with a different, kind of doubt, a different kind of unconvincedness. We were unconvinced by the surface uh, appearance of reality. Now, that sounds kind of highfalutin and very, very kind of abstract and philosophical, and I suppose it is, but it, but it was part of the mindset of, that allowed us, and I, again, using that very loosely, allowed me, let's say, to take an image from a magazine, an advertisement from a magazine, and approach it as if it were more than itself, or both more or less than itself. It's a hard one to describe. I think you know what I mean. And, and what, would you, what would you say, your, what, was your, what is your creative process like? What is sort of an average day for you? Well, the best days are days I just get up and get in the studio early and stay there all day, actually putting brush to canvas. I mean, that is the simplest possible day is, is by far the best day. And I try to do that most days. It doesn't happen every day. There's a lot of logistical stuff involved with making paintings and having a studio and, you know, you need a certain kind of support team and whatnot. But my life is pretty straightforward, pretty simple. I don't have a lot of assistance. I don't have a vast studio with where I need a scooter to get around. I, it's, it's, I'm working pretty much the way people worked 500 years ago, just with, you know, a little bit better lighting, probably. Painting is a really old technology. It's kind of, it's amazing that it's, that it's survived, uh, that people keep reinventing it is, is, is something that I'm always marveling at. My, my days are also divided between painting and writing. I spend a fair amount of time writing. Sometimes I'll write 
in the mornings and paint in the afternoons. That's that's a typical day where I paint all day and then write it in the evenings. It's a fairly solitary existence that's emotionally propped up by by a handful of very good friends who are kind of like-minded or who, who at least are semi um, you know engaged what I'm doing. Do you sketch first before you? I, I don't. I'm I'm very much a direct painter, which which isn't to say that I'm painting from life necessarily, although I do that also. I'm direct in the sense that I'm only interested in the experience of putting something on a canvas at, at, at actual scale in real time. So I, I have found, I have nothing against sketching or preparatory drawings. I've just found they don't really help me very much because my engagement with the, with the, with the painting is is exactly that. I'm I'm reacting to the thing as it goes along in real time. If I were to make a sketch and then try to execute the sketch, it would throw me off. It would it would point me in a different direction. I would would not be reacting to the thing in as it evolves in, in actual size. So I just start, which is very risky and foolhardy. I mean, sometimes I'll make notes to myself so I don't forget an idea, a visual idea. The thing I really most like, and this is very much how I worked with Carol when we were designing the ballets, the thing I really most like is to is to come to something that's that I've already started, that puts one element of the painting down, or sometimes it's a blank canvas, and I just daydream. I just feel my way emotionally and intuitively into the life of the image that's there or what I kind of see in my mind's eye that ought to be there. I have enough faith in the process that that guides my, my um, you know, what happens next. Now, one can be wrong, and I, I am often wrong. But then that revision and undoing, redoing becomes part of the process as well. And you said that you are very critical of your earlier work. Is there, a, on the flip side of that, is there a piece in your career that you look back on and you say, like, that's the one that I got it right? That's <laughs> well, the one that I, yeah. I, really, I really think, like, that one's not so bad. Well, I mean, yes, thankfully, there are paintings that I feel like, <laughs> It, that painting does everything that, that it, the painting is set out to do. It's successful on its own terms. And I think paintings need to be seen on the terms that they themselves set out for themselves, not to impose some other terms on it. But when I see early work of mine, I often recognize how it could have been done so much better if I were, if I were to paint that painting today. But of course, that's a, that's a futile exercise because I'm not painting it today. I painted it when I painted it and I knew at the time, just what I knew, not more than what I knew. So I was limited by, you know, by my by myself at that time. Thank God you look at things and realize how they could be improved. I mean, it, it, painting is one of the few things in life where I think you can actually get better as you get older. Most things, it's a you know, straight downhill, but painting requires, I think it's one of the things that actually requires experience, maybe not you can certainly make paintings without having an experience, but it's a, it's that sensation of call and response that is painting as you're kind of editing as you go along, adjusting as you go along. That is that is the thing which is the almost like the muscle memory in the in the painter, and that can't be can't be achieved quickly. David's show at the Brandt Foundation is a must for any lover of his paintings. Often in the digital age, color and scale and dimensionality get lost. At this tranquil location, surrounded by nature and lots of silence, 
the venue elevates his work in ways that you can't really experience at, say, a museum in Manhattan. I wanted to ask the artist how it all came to be and why he chose this show to debut his first NFT, a video work made of swirling images and sound. How did the show first come about? Well, Peter Brandt is a, has been a collector of mine for many, many years. We met in the 80s and um, we formed a friendship. We've been friends for many years, with many friends in common over the years. Uh, and when Peter opened the foundation, with the, which was a very, very beautiful renovation of a building on, on his property in Greenwich, the shows Peter did there were always exquisitely installed and kind of very special. So I, uh, you know, we just worked its way through the through the roster, so to speak. Eventually, Peter asked me if I wanted to do a show there, and so we, of course. And then we worked on it together with uh, with Allison Brandt, uh, Peter's daughter, who runs the foundation. The three of us really designed the show and chose the paintings and worked on the specific installation and juxtapositions and whatnot. But it was a rare thing because the since the private foundation, there was there was it was a very small team. We didn't have to things didn't have to be ratified by by any you know by, by the higher ups, so to speak. We were the higher ups, so. Um, and it's a beautiful space. So we, it was it was altogether great fun. And as as I've been told at, at, at the Brandt show that I've seen, um, mm. your first NFT, yes. this uh, this video piece. Um, why I I have to ask, like, what enticed you to explore this format, and like, what do you think of this new era in in the art world? Yeah, the the NFT is is interesting, and for me, it really re- relates directly to the to the ballet work and to the thinking about the performing arts in general. Because the one thing that painting doesn't do, it doesn't have. I mean, painting can do a lot. It has it's it's a, it's decorative. It's a social document. It's a it's a record of how things look. It's a it's an existential exercise in in. In the in the meaning of a gesture and a line, and it's I mean it has many many aspects and many many qualities, and it can do a lot. It, it, it can carry a lot of cultural baggage, but the thing it can't do, it doesn't move, and it doesn't have sound. So, I mean, it's not like I go around wishing that painting could 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 sing and dance. However, the idea that you could take a painting and animate it, actually, literally, make it move, make it kind of bring it to life on that level, and add music to you know into the mix, well, it was it was irresistible for me. It was very much what I've been thinking about with my work all along, and as I said, you know, very much indulged that side of my work when I collaborated with Carol, and certainly when I when I worked on the film. My idea for NFT and again the technology behind it and the crypto um, kind of space that it that, that exists in is something I'm not prepared to talk about because I'm I'm not a technological person and I I, mean, I understand it conceptually but I, I couldn't really begin to explain it to you. However, the the ability to just take a painting and make it do other things at the same time that it retains its original um, its original identity as a painting. And, and then add to that uh, music composed specifically for the for the event. Uh, I mean, it was for me, it was as, as natural as you know, just as, as breathing. I, I didn't have to think about it twice. It was just fun to do it, and um, I'm really glad that this uh, format exists and that this context exists. It didn't exist just you know, half a dozen years ago, and, and I, to me, it's a natural thing. I think everyone's going to be 
not everyone, but many people are going to be experimenting in this space and, and, you know, the more the merrier. And when I was at the show, there was a random person uh, walking around at the same time. And we were all in that little room where the NFT is shown. And he was like, ah, oh, NFTs, it's such a fad, don't you think? And then he kind of like walked off. And I think in the art world, it's kind of divided into two kinds of people, of people who are kind of like believe in NFTs or at least believe that the technology is here to stay. And then the other people who are thinking that it's, uh, it's just not necessarily, it might be either a fad or just sort of of its time. Do you think that that this is a kind of a, the way that it works as much as we, you and I can explain it to people. Do you think that it's a fad is like, or do you think that it's, um, I mean, a fad sounds negative, but you know what I mean? When people talk about the NFTs, they're, they're, they're talking about several different things. One, one of them, one of the things people are talking about is this technology that will allow thing commodities to be bought and sold using the blockchain uh, and, and, sort of going around what's called going around the gatekeepers and we are eliminating the need for the gatekeepers. There's a kind of evangelical uh, eureka embrace of this blockchain technology as a wave of the future. I don't know anything about that. I'm not prepared to talk about that. It very it may well turn out to be the, the, the future that we're all moving toward, both in terms of just currency, the nature of currency, the nature of money, the nature of, of uh, archives, the nature of experience. It might, you know, this... I'm prepared to believe this is the future. However, it doesn't really interest me as as such. I mean, I, it, whether it is or isn't is not going to really change my life very much. What does interest me, as like I said before, is just this ability to take images from one's own imagination or from one's own sort of body of work and do other things with them, to, to recombine them, to manipulate them, to you know make them do other things and have other spaces. I mean, if, if you're in, engaged, as, as I have been all these years, in looking at the nature of juxtaposition and the nature of of how certain images impact other images, it, it, it's, a, it's a natural outgrowth of that. One of the things that I, that I most enjoy doing sets for ballet is to be able to work with sp- specific duration. And again, it's it's a little bit counterintuitive because the painting doesn't have a duration. It's it's there as long as you look at it, and it'll be there the next time you look at it, which is one of painting's great strengths. And I would never want to change that. However, at the same time, to be able to say, no, you're going to look at this image for exactly a half a second, and then you're going to look at something else. Or you're going to look at this image for four minutes, and then you're going to look at something else for four seconds. To be able to determine duration, play with duration, make that part of the viewing experience. Is just another dimension that you know I'm interested in working with. Whether it's whether the whole thing is a fad or not, would depends entirely on what people make out of it. There's nothing a priori positive or negative about it any more than there was about videotape when it was new, or performance art when it was new, or um, let's say lost wax casting when that was new. There's always a new technology. I'm not always, but you know, you know periodically there are new technologies. Come, come, come about for whatever reason, and artists have traditionally always embraced them. Have been the, have been among the first to embrace them. There was a time when oil paint was a new technology, and I'm sure there were I'm sure there were people in 1400 who said, "Oil paint, come on, egg temper is where it's at, man." But you know, people got people came to realize that oil paint could do things that egg temper couldn't do, and they they liked what it did. But as a visual artist, its value doesn't, for me, doesn't lie in in the fact that it's a blockchain. It just lies in in, in the fact that it's a possibility. 
and the possibility only matters uh, when you make something out of it. And forgive my ever- ignorance, have you ever done video art before? Well, I did video art in college, and, and one of the it's one of the things that you do when you're exploring post studio art. I mean, it's not it's not obligatory, obviously, but it was in the air. I mean, everybody was taking their turn with the video camera. This is actually a very good case in point. Lightweight, portable video cameras that you could that an individual could take around and record anything that that, that was in front of you, as opposed to a, a TV station. You know, having to have technicians and a, and a, and a sound stage and whatnot. I mean, this was brand new in nineteen, I think, nineteen seventy. So, of course, artists gravitated toward it, and everybody wanted to have fun with the video camera. I can only think of a very, very small number of profoundly great videotapes that came out of it. But you know, the the, the ratio of excellence to the rest of it is is neither here nor there. It's a, it was simply a new tool. And I remember I remember John saying, "Oh, yes, video." camera should just be considered like a, it's another tool in the artist's toolbox, just like a paintbrush. And no one would say that merely picking up a paintbrush is profound. What's profound is what you make with the paintbrush. And when it comes to with what you make with the paintbrush, um, there's a lot of, in many of your works, there's, you know, women, as we had discussed, there's sort of ideas of sensuality, the female form, um, it plays a role in your work. And as uh, nowadays, as many people, you know, put their own biases or kind of try to judge something uh, in their own way, would you want to, would you want to explain to the listener uh, to set that part of the record straight in terms of uh, how that part of your creative output, like how should it be viewed from, from your point of view? Yeah. Well, there is, there is a, um, well, first of all, you're right. I mean, thank you. There's there are, there are several things to say here. One is that cultural norms or attitudes do change and they do shift. And I think it's incumbent on us to look at things if we're if we're kind of in the evaluating mode. To look at things through the lens of the time in which they were made. Uh, even though I'm a you know I'm a living artist and still a contemporary artist. Certain things were made, you know, forties some years ago, and the, the world has definitely changed. Attitudes have changed. Maybe, maybe the world hasn't changed, but attitudes have changed. So I think it's important, number one, to not to look at things from the past with the lens only of today. Whoever's work we're talking about, whether it's Gauguin's or or mine. Uh, that being said, I th- I think that. What I my starting point for the, for my work, um, as I said earlier, was this kind of intense meditation on or examination of what it means to represent something in the first place. What is what does a representational image do to us as we look at it? What is the nature of our interaction with it? And I think this um, Kind of knee-jerk critique of the male gaze, as if as as a as a pernicious um, thing, is complicated. the The male gaze may, in fact, be pernicious in the world. May have may have caused injury in the world, but I'm not sure that's the same thing as when it's employed in a painting or when it becomes part of the 
fabric of a painting. I tend to think of, I tend to think that we're all adults here, and I think the, my, my audience tends to be adults, although I don't think it's necessarily limited to adults. I mean, children are pretty wise. Um, but I, I like to think that I, I live in a kind of an adult world, and I think that what the painting really is obligated to do is to show something of reality, something of what is the case. So, of course, the, uh, the, the, the paintings, uh, especially the paintings of women, of, of nudes, and of, of the, where the eroticism is very much foregrounded in the painting, of course, those paintings have as their overall backdrop. I mean, they're, they're, they're painted against a backdrop of all the complexity and problematics of the male gaze and the, and the gender lack of parity or will toward gender parity. I mean, I, th- I personally feel like all of those you know, problematic, uncomfortable-making, self-reflexive you know, dynamics are in the painting, and the paintings are not one-dimensional. It's not, it's not as simple as looking at a, a, at a, at a you know, pin-up photograph in a magazine. That's a very different kind of experience. Now, there might be something of that experience which is carried over to the painting, but the painting does it in a very in a very conscious, specific, and I think self-critiqued kind of way. I think the, the, the mistake that it has been made is simply to look at one, look at an image in one circumstance and assume it's the same as an image in a very different circumstance. I, I think it's incumbent on us to look at how things work in the paintings, not how things work outside of paintings. I mean, for example, when you look at, let's say, Francis Bacon's painting, there's some paintings which are, you know, one might describe them as a kind of uh, overtly homoerotic or have a, they have a kind of erotics of pain, erotics of difficulty, of, um, you know, the, 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 simply the erotics itself is so complicated and so fraught with a, with a kind of dual nature. But, I, you know, when I, but I look, when I look at Bacon's work, I look at those feelings in the painting. I don't look at the, the, the male nudes and the, in Bacon's paintings and think about those bodies outside of the painting, so to speak. Or if I do, it's the painting that gives me access to those bodies. Now you could say, well, you, I mean, some people would say, well, you're not allowed to claim privileged space of a painting. A painting is just a manifestation of a male hierarchy, maybe of a you know, patriarchal, oppressive hierarchy. I mean, to which I, I, there, there is no, there's no answer. And then I just, the answer is don't look at it. I mean, if it's, if it's, you know, so bothersome. But I really think that the paintings are very open hearted and open minded and open. To the reality of 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 experience as it's you know, to life as it's lived and experienced, and part of that is the you know admittedly very I mean not admittedly like I'm admitting it but like you know yes obviously extremely complex dynamics uh, between men and women I know it's it's perhaps unfashionable to be to be a straight man but that's fashionableness can't be my concern, if you know what I mean. I mean, I, I, don't, I think the people who make that criticism would also not want to say, they would not want to be seen as saying that art should only concern itself with what's fashionable, because that would be incorrect. Um, I, I think, you know, and, and on the very simplest level, I mean, the, the whole rhetoric of the avant-garde uh, argues for this, is that if something is problematic, Let's say the very depiction of women's bodies by by male artists is problematic. Would it not be incumbent on an artist to exactly to go to go there to investigate exactly that 
you know, what is exactly problematic about it? How does it work? What is the nature of this, 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 you know, exposure? Um, anyway, I think that those, those concerns are in the paintings and the paintings are, um, you know, they sort of come, they come to the conversation equipped with that, with that uh, information that, you know, sometimes people criticize the paintings as if I've never thought of these things, which, you know, is kind of stunning. But anyway, I don't know what to say, Dan. I think that, you know, we're, we're, in a, we're unfortunately, I think we're, we're, you know, we're in danger of being in a place culturally that is so um, uh, uh, antiseptic or so policed that, that the, the actual true nature of, you know, what happens between two people or between, you know, a person and themselves or what just what happens is, is somehow not, not permitted, which strikes me as unfortunate. I mean, you wouldn't want to say, for example, that, you know, we shouldn't make paintings of war because we don't like it. I mean, it, it, that, that's just counterintuitive. One of the things that I that struck me, especially in the Brandt show in this period of time, for whatever reason, um, is the sort of the brilliance of the color of the paintings and how how joyful just seeing the colors in person were in this new digital age when we mostly see art through you know, pictures and through the iPhone and and through things like that. So in this time of kind of isolation and seeing the world through this window, right, this digital window, um, how does David Sally stay inspired on a day-to-day basis? I do think the internet is a great boon. I, I really do. I mean, especially if one's going to be confined to quarters, so to speak. Uh, there's just simply so much visual information that one can access so easily. I have a very big library. I have a, a rather big library of art books and design books and architecture books, which I periodically leaf through. I'm very much inspired by other people's art. I think for me, the, the impulse to make art comes from a kind of amalgam of different places. But one of those places is is seeing art. I mean, I think, I think to some extent, the desire to make art comes from seeing art. If I had never seen art, if I'd never seen something that I had a big reaction to or a big, um, you know, it really made me stop in my tracks and, and take a deep breath, who knows if I would have had the the um, compulsion to make it myself. So I'm, there's so many talented people working today in so many different, different ways. You don't really have to look very far to find someone who's doing something amazing. I find that inspiring. I find that seeing people push this envelope, this painting envelope further and further and further, and then come at it with a different set of eyes, a different perspective, a different, different orientation. Sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes it's um, unpleasant. Sometimes it's merely uh, foreign feeling, but all of that is, is challenging and inspiring there's so many different layers of inspiration for sure. The things which have inspired painters for hundreds of years, the, the sensation of light as it falls on a, on a, on a bowl of oranges by the window. I mean, I wouldn't rule it out, although I'm not really, I'm not a painter of still lifes in that way. I use, at least ideally, I use those sensations in my work and I've, I'm rooted in them and I locate my, sense of myself within those kinds of visual sensations. I mean, I'm a great believer in 
in the meaning of the visual world of the the the, the, the richness and intrigue and mystery of the visual world and I, it's 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 I, I i'm i'm lucky that way i'm seldom wanting for inspiration it's if anything it's just simply a matter of energy how much energy one has to carry out carry these things out will you ever retire i don't know of a single artist who's ever retired and maybe when maybe agnes martin did br- briefly i think she sort of intermittently went in and out of, in and out of retirement uh, but i think painters painters tend to work until they are carried out of the studio <laughs> hopefully i'll follow that model Thank you to David, Mary Schwab, and Third Eye Communications for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And visit thegrandtourist.net to sign up for updates. And also don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Until next time.